0: All right, I want to thank you all for... What's that? Okay. All right, thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, I know you could probably be doing a lot more entertaining things than listening to me. Uh, And I want to thank the Theology on Tap team for letting me come out. Uh, It is a risk handing somebody a microphone uh, because they get to hold you hostage uh, with it. I've been told I get, what, 20 minutes? Is that right? Okay, so I'm going to do my best to honor that tonight okay so we are here to talk about heresies but first I want to tell you a little bit about my Saturday morning routines Uh, so my wife and I have a bit of a routine where we get up and we make pancakes sometimes waffles uh, and we usually watch either a baking show or one of these like DIY home shows Uh, so this is how you know you're getting old when you do things like browse Zillow for fun. Does anybody else do that? Where you're like, hey honey, come check out this like sexy brownstone, right? Um, that's how you know you're getting old. But we've, uh, we've gotten into these DIY shows mostly because we can't afford a house. And uh, you know, there's different types of shows out there where sometimes the, the decorators, they'll come in and they'll just kind of change things on the surface, you know, different paint. Uh, Maybe a little bit different style, some accent pieces, some trim, things like that. And usually, you know, at at the end of the day, the house is still livable. It's not that different. But, uh, and you may not like the, it may not be your taste, right? But uh, at the end of the day, it's still a house. Uh, And then there are those designers who are a bit more bold, right? And they'll come in and they'll start changing things structurally, where they'll knock down a wall, you know, because now the big thing is like big open spaces and, and studios and, and all that. And, of course, when you start doing that, there's a lot of risks. There's some things you can and can't do. Uh, there, there, of course, you might get a little more tension between people who live in the house. Uh, and so it, knocking down a wall is an important thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still kind of a house. You can still live in it, if it's not, even if it's not your favorite And then, of course, uh, you don't really go much beyond that because the other piece of house is the foundation. And you never see people coming in and changing the foundation. Because if you get to the point where you have to start changing the foundation, you're worried about knocking down the whole house. If you can't see where I'm already going with this, okay. Um, When it comes to a person's theology, it's a lot like a house. There are different levels of importance to our various doctrines uh, where there are certain things that are just a matter of Christian taste. Uh, I would put in this category things like music styles or carpet color or the type of building you meet in. Now, we might have opinions about these things and we might say, OK, well, I want to go to a church that has these particular features. But largely, these are aesthetic uh, Again, they're matters of taste, and at the end of the day, like I'm not going to say that somebody who worships differently than me or something like that is is necessarily out of fellowship with me, right? They're Christians too. We'll see each other in the eschaton. Great. Now there may be a second level of doctrines where we might get a little more heated. So this isn't this isn't uh, as much music styles as it is things like. Maybe how we understand the sacraments, or maybe our understanding of Paul on justification, or, you know, there was a, I don't know, it was a couple months ago, we had one in here on the atonement, and we saw all these different ideas on, on how Christian atonement works, and certainly people will get kind of heated about these things, and they've got very strong opinions. These are very important things to discuss, but at the end of the day, we can still, even after a heated debate, look at one another and say, yes, you're my brother or sister in Christ. Uh, and even though you're completely wrong, we'll probably see each other in heaven. Great. Then there's the third level, the foundational level. And this is the one we don't talk about quite as much. But there's a level of, of Christian theology that is the kind of thing that you can't really mess with. The sort, of, the sort of doctrines that if you were to deny them, they would bring the whole house down. So a a quick and simple illustration that I don't think will be controversial at all would be to say if you deny the existence of God. So I don't know about you, but if anybody was to say I am an atheist Christian, that would sound very odd. Uh, You just don't really get that. I mean, granted, we live in in a country which thankfully you can call yourself whatever you want. But at the end of the day, we would say it's not very reasonable for you to be a Christian who doesn't believe in God. So that's a simple one. Nobody's arguing that. But there might be other ones. Uh, For instance, questions about who Jesus is, questions about uh, what a human is, questions about uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament relationship, things like that, which we have to, as Christians, sit down and say, okay, there is a, a level of essential understanding that if you can't say, I believe these things, you can't really call yourself Christian. And I know that's not popular to tell people what they can and can't call themselves, but really, like, yes. I mean, that. again, I'm an atheist Christian. Sounds a bit silly. Uh, so these deni- the denial of these foundational things is what we call heresies. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, thank you, Sarah. Uh, and I want to establish that because the word heresy even though you don't hear it all that often anymore, it does get thrown around in odd contexts. And oftentimes people will say heresy, and what they really mean is I just disagree with you know, a structural or an aesthetic thing. Uh, and granted, sometimes people's line between foundational and maybe just structural or aesthetic might be different than others. Uh, But at the end of the day, at least when I'm talking about heresy, I'm saying the kind of thing that you just cannot deny and still call yourself Christian. Fair enough? Okay. All right, so I want to give you a few examples of heresies throughout history, but before I get to that, I want to give these people a little bit of credit because history has sort of demonized heretics, uh, and I, I have a little soft space in my heart for them. Uh, because if you think about it, a lot of these people were at least I think so well meaning christians, people who were were faithful to Christ, who were struggling with a really tough question, and they just got it wrong uh, so and this has got to be true in the early centuries when Christianity is a minority religion. It's being persecuted. So definitely the people that are part of it, the people that are joining the church and calling them Christians, they must believe in it. Were we waving? Okay, somebody was waving. Hi. Um, I don't know if that was me or not. Uh, so I do want to say, while ultimately we, we, these people's names have gone down in history, you know, Arius becomes Arianism, I mean, how'd you like your name to be turned into a heresy? That's no fun. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, these were well-meaning people, so I want to just give them a little shout-out before we do that. Okay, Um, I also tend to believe that, maybe this is naive and optimistic of me, but I think most people don't, most people want to believe true things, right? None of us say things like, well, I know what I think is wrong, but I'm still going to choose to believe it. I know, we believe things because we think they're right. Uh, so I think people want to, want to believe correctly, uh, but we also need to realize that, especially when we talk about foundational things, what we believe about them is going to change what we think about everything else. So that's the, that's the problem we run into with some of these people. All right, so the first one we're going to look at is Arianism, and it's going to ask this question, is Jesus divine? What's the answer? Yes. Okay. Well, at least some of you. Yeah, who? Great. (laughs) All right, we got to go back. Um, So in... No. Uh, Okay. So the early church, they have experienced the Christ event, and it shook them up, right? It shook up their whole theology. It shook up their understanding of the world. Uh, They're trying to figure out what to do with their understanding of this guy uh, who came and died and resurrected and ascended and then sent the Spirit, and they're trying to figure out what to do. They're asking all these questions like, okay, well... Who exactly was Jesus? Is Jesus just a really good human? Uh, is he God? Is he something else? And while they're asking these questions, uh, a guy by the name of Arius in Alexandria, he starts thinking about this and he says, okay, well, uh, well okay, so I want to give him some credit. Like I said, I, the heretics have a little special place in my heart. So Arius, he wants to do something. He wants to protect monotheism right? Fun word meaning the belief in one God. And he wants to protect that. And so he says, okay, the way my bishop is talking about this Jesus character is really exalting this guy up to, to the way that we would talk about God the Father. And that makes him a little bit uncomfortable. And so he, he reasons that, well, if we talk about the Father and the Son, and surely when we, when we use that analogy of the Father and the Son, and fathers beget sons, so there must have been a time when the Son was not, right? The Son didn't exist, so he was a, a creation, he's a, he's a creature. Uh, and maybe he's a lot like the Father in the same way that sons are a lot like their fathers, but he isn't the Father, he's not the same. Uh, and so he starts teaching that Jesus is not God. Jesus is the first and greatest of creatures. Uh, He identifies, if you're familiar with Logos, that kind of term that we get from the book of John and other things. So Jesus is the Logos. He's this, you know, he's better than us in a lot of ways, but he's not God. So Jesus can't fully comprehend the mind of God. When we look at Jesus, we don't fully see God. Uh, But in this way, he is, of course, trying to protect God from, say, polytheism, you know, worshiping multiple gods. The problem that we run into with what Arius is teaching is that in his attempt to protect monotheism, he's putting Christians in a weird spot because we worship this guy named Jesus, and if Jesus isn't God, what does that make us? Sorry, I'm a professor. I ask questions. Idolaters, yes, right. So we're worshiping all of a sudden a creature that is not God. And that's, of course, like, I mean, going back to... Old Testament stuff. That's like rule number one, right? You don't you don't worship any other god. So, in trying to protect monotheism, in a way he kind of threatens it because now we don't know if we're supposed to worship Jesus or not. Uh, he also, in a way, threatens our understanding of salvation because if Jesus is a creature himself, and if we have this larger understanding that the the fall and the rebellion was more than just the separation of of humans and God, but rather this fall and rebellion has an effect on all of creation and all of its creatures and that all of creation needs to be redeemed. Well, then if you're all on the sinking ship together and Jesus is a creature, how does somebody on the sinking ship rescue you out of the sinking ship? And so Jesus himself theoretically would need salvation. If only God can save and Jesus is not God, how does Jesus save? So we run into a whole bunch of problems with this, and there's a big fight. And I think there's a uh, there's I don't I think this is just a legend. Uh, but speaking of Christmas and Saint Nick, uh, there's a legend going back to this big council they call in a place called Nicaea, uh, where Constantine the emperor, who himself is a new Christian, he wants to settle this matter because the church is arguing over it, and. You know, this isn't Christianity's proudest moment, but sometimes we do fight with one another. And in this case, uh, there's rumors that it actually broke out into a bit of a fist fight, and Saint Nick ends up punching Arius in the face. I think that's a legend. I don't know. Uh, But there's a fun image of Santa for you. Uh, Santa cares about right doctrine. He is orthodox. That's what, you know, right, right belief. Okay. Uh, And then this is where our nice question about the Nicene Creed, and if you want to talk about heresies, creeds are things that help us uh, identify what these essential or foundational doctrines are in Christianity. So the Nicene Creed, or before that the Apostles' Creed, Other later councils or attempts to say, okay, if you want to be a Christian, you should at least be able to say yes to these things. And so that early, uh, or that Nicene Creed comes along and says, okay, well, Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. Because a guy named Athanasius comes along and he says, all right, Arius, true enough, you know, fair enough, father, son, all that kind of stuff. But you carried the metaphor too far. Uh, It's not that God gave birth to Jesus or that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist, as in the analogy with human father and sons but rather uh, it's this sense of generation. So our, our calling father and son is merely a descriptive of the relationship between the two people, but it doesn't describe the sense of creation, but rather generation. Uh, and if you don't know the difference between that, uh, ask one of the other people on the panel, uh, because my expertise is Old Testament, so I don't, I don't know. Okay. <clears throat> So why does this matter? Because I want to, as we talk about these three heresies very quickly, I want to say, all right, well, this is old stuff, right? I mean, they've talked about this before. Why bother talking about these things? Believe it or not, these sorts of ideas are more present and relevant today than we realize. So one, uh, when we talk about Jesus's divinity, this question of if he's divine, if he's just a creature and he saves us by, say, modeling salvation or modeling humanity or something like that, then salvation is not a deliverance at all, but rather just becomes this sort of message to try harder. Right? So like Jesus, the, the great creature who managed to succeed, you know, perhaps we're just supposed to be like him and do better. Um, also, it creates a problem with us, uh, for us because if Jesus is not God, then in some way God becomes unknowable. Right? God is distant. God has not come to us. But Christianity has traditionally taught that Jesus is the full revelation of God. That if you want to know what God is like, you can't get any closer to God than when God became flesh. And this destroys that whole understanding. And then, uh, finally, back in the when they talked about the atonement, was anybody here for that one? The atonement discussion? Okay, not a lot. Uh, so, this may not make sense to you, but one of the, the issues with... Jesus dying, is that people accuse Christianity of teaching this idea of divine child abuse. Uh, and you can certainly say that if what, Jesus, what God did was send a creature to do the dirty work in his place, rather than understand that God himself came down to die for humanity. And so with a, you know, as, as we, or when we ask this question, is Jesus divine? And we say yes, we acknowledge that God loves humanity so much that God gives of himself. He doesn't send somebody else to do the dirty work. Uh, this is why this doctrine is why if you've ever wondered, and I don't want to pick on any particular, uh, under, you know, denomination or, or faith here, uh, but if you've ever wondered why, say, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are often considered outside the the larger ecumenical Christian body, it's because Arianism is a large part of their theology. So, in if you read the uh, the translation that they use, they actually have a different reading of the beginning of John, where in the Greek and translated into our English Bibles, it says the word was with God and the word was God, and in their translation, it says the word was with God and the word was like God, which is not there, which is not present in the original Greek, uh, but it is in those Bibles. So it's a it's a present-day Arianism. This also becomes one of the questions uh, that comes up in our our relationship with, say, Islam. So we have Christianity and Islam have a lot in common uh, in terms of our a lot of our outlook, um, our our morals, things like that. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, because I always hate when people who aren't Christian misrepresent Christianity. So I don't want to be the Christian misrepresenting Islam. But my understanding is that in Islam, of course, Jesus is a a great teacher. Uh, He is a prophet. Uh, there's actually an affirmation of the virgin birth, if I remember correctly, but uh, Muslims would not follow us on saying that Jesus is divine. That would be a big problem for them. And so this becomes one of the big divisions for us between Islam and Christianity, is this question of the divinity of Jesus. Again, we've got a lot in common, uh, but there are going to be foundational things about our understanding that uh, make us separate faiths. So this is Arianism. All right, not too many heavy eyes yet. Usually my students about this time are just like... Okay. Good job! (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yes, I was fishing for like, (laughs) compliments. Um, My own insecurities coming out in the mic. All right. So the second one I would talk about is one called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a funny one because we talk about it like it's a singular thing, and it's really not. Uh, in fact, there's a lot we don't know about it, but we did find some texts at a fancy, you know, here's uh, Nag Hammadi. Uh, so that's a fun, anyway, a library that we found. So anyway, uh, these are words that you throw around to sound really smart. Uh, so I'll teach you some of these words, Nag Hammadi. You could actually just use it. You don't even have to know the definition because nobody else knows what it is anyway. So just use it to mean anything and people will be like, oh, that person's really smart. Okay. So Gnosticism, we learn a little bit about. Uh, there, and this is the question, of, if we asked earlier, is Jesus divine? And we say as Christians, yes, that's foundational. You have to say Jesus is divine. This is the question of, does matter matter? So like matter, stuff, things, are they important? Uh, it's also the question of how is a person saved and to what kind of existence? So Gnosticism, as I said, it's not a central belief system. I'm going to present kind of one aspect of it that, that often we see. But early, it's not even, a. honestly, it's not even, it doesn't quite grow out of Christianity. It's more of like a, a side thing that comes into Christianity in those early centuries. It's it's all this Greek philosophy. They, they believe that there is something called the pleroma or the fullness that's out there. and it's sort of this divine spiritual reality. It's, it's, it's unified. And somehow that pleroma ends up shattering, and it emanates out from it all this, this like grand hierarchy of other beings and gods and things that just emanate out from this pleroma. And as you get towards the, you know as you get further out, you make copies of copies of things, they get a little more distorted. You get to kind of the end of all these, I don't know, we'd call them gods or something, these spiritual beings. Uh, And there's one that goes by various names. My favorite is the Demiurge. Uh, And the Demiurge is this evil god. And this evil god decides to create the material world. So all the stuff we see around us, uh, this evil god is created. Funnily enough, uh, the the Gnostics identify this evil God with the God of the Old Testament. So when they read Genesis 1, they go, oh, that's the Demiurge. He's the evil God creating all this stuff. And you and I, we are little shards of the divine pleroma that have broken off, and the Demiurge has taken us and trapped us in these terrible, terrible bodies. I mean, mine's not terrible, right? I mean, but... Thanks. Thanks. The most humble person I know. Okay. So anyway, we get trapped in these terrible, terrible bodies. And you can actually get a sense of where they would think that the material world is terrible uh, to exist. You know, we we experience things like pain and suffering and sadness and all these other things. And so you could, if your pain and your suffering and sadness are intense enough, start to think that life in this form is bad. And so this is the understanding they come to. Uh, Spirit equals good, matter equals bad. So, this uh, philosophy kind of works its way into early Christianity. It's very attractive. And there's some problems with this that you maybe could see forming. One, of course, it's going to deny a lot of what the Bible teaches us about creation. So, creation in the Old Testament is a good thing. God creates the world and says, "This is good. This is what God created us uh, to be in." Uh, it's this beautiful artwork. Now we recognize that the earth is messed up right now, and we've got a—that's part of our story too. But originally, the creation is a good thing, and it's not created by some other god. It's created by the one God, the one good God. Okay. Another problem. So the way that they view salvation. Is that if you want to get saved, it's not because Jesus died on the cross or something like that. It's because Jesus passes on a secret knowledge. So this is a very like mystical kind of like Masons or one of those like secret society kind of things. uh, Where if you get the secret knowledge, you can be saved. So you escape this horrible body and you end up like flying back to the Pleroma and joining the divine fullness. So that's the idea of salvation. So not only does this deny the good creation, but it's going to deny things like the resurrection. So here's an interesting question. The scripture is pretty clear that when Jesus comes back, he doesn't come back as a ghost. He comes back with a body. But that would be very odd if Jesus's purpose was to come back and help us escape bodies. How does that work? Um, It also denies the idea that we are going to be resurrected, right? So this is an important part of Christian teaching, is the resurrection. It also seems to limit salvation to the very smart people who can join the secret societies and uh, get this knowledge. Uh, By the way, if you want to be saved, you can Venmo me $100, um, and I will email you the the secret knowledge to salvation. Uh, Okay. It also denies the importance of bodily existence. So I think if we put a little thought into it, we understand that the body plays a pretty big role in who we are. First of all, there's not this like really strong disconnect between my spirit and my body. Uh, we've got this word hangry, which we laugh at, but if you if you realize that word exists because we recognize that Something as simple as hunger, or, and common as hunger can change our entire disposition, right? So this simple, common thing about the body has an effect on who I am. This also has profound implications for things like uh, discussions about race and gender. You know, does your, does your gender, does your race, does that play a role in your identity, Um, Or does that just not matter? That's not a big deal. Uh, I think that's a pretty important question. It's also an issue between, say, something, faiths like Christianity and Buddhism. So Buddhism is very similar to Gnosticism. Uh, And again, I want to be careful about being the Christian who speaks for the Buddhists, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But a lot of Buddhism, uh, or within Buddhism, they look at individual existence like we have, as a negative thing, that the goal uh, is not to, Westerners mix this up all the time, where we think that the goal is just to reincarnate in some better existence, that's not really the goal of Buddhism. Even to reincarnate into the the top, you know, become a king or something like that, uh, is still to be within this existence of suffering and individualism. So really what you want to do is you want to escape this cycle of reincarnation through uh, both enlightenment, through special knowledge, and ascetic practices, or self-denial. So it's funny when I see somebody, you know, pull up in their, like, Land Rover and get out in their, like, yoga gear and all that stuff and say they want to, like, embrace Buddhism, and I'm like, okay, well, hand over your keys to the Land Rover. I'll help you do that. Um, So anyway. Uh, Again, lots of wonderful things about Buddhism. Not knocking it. I'm just saying it's a very different worldview. Are we already out of time? Oh, gosh. Okay, I didn't even get to Donatism. Okay, well, I'll make it quick. I'll make it quick. Okay, so Donatism, another person comes along and says... uh, Actually, I think this one's relevant. So I'll say, it's a question early on, does an unworthy minister uh, invalidate sacraments? So there's an early... Uh, when, the, when the Christians are being persecuted, Diocletian, the Roman emperor, he comes in and he says, okay, all you Christians, give up your property, give up your Bibles, give up everything, quit being Christians. And some of them say, okay. Uh, and it's hard to judge them from the outside, right? But some of them hand over the property, they do things. Well, later on, uh, when Christianity is no longer against the law, these Christians want to come back and they want to rejoin the church. And the Christians who had persecuted uh, Persevered through that persecution, they say, "No, you all are traitors. You gave up on the faith." Uh, and then the question comes in, and they say, "Well, what if somebody was a traitor, and they administered sacraments? Are those, sorry, oh, sorry, sacrament? Uh, so the the practices of the church, so things like baptism." Uh, the eucharist ordination things like what depends on the tradition you come from Uh, it's actually a little harder to define than i think Uh, but in a lot of traditions these are means of grace right so these are ways that you kind of experience the grace of god and so the question becomes if i'm a sinner if i'm a traitor and i am the one administering the sacraments to you are those sacraments still valid and these these donatists they say no Uh, But Augustine and others come along and they say, well, actually you're you're making a couple false mistakes. One, you're not accounting for the fallibility of humans this side of the resurrection, because while we do hold and should hold our leaders to a high standard, they're not infallible, right? They they aren't glorified yet. They're still um, subject to sin. And so uh, it also fails to recognize that the holiness of the sacraments is not due to the holiness of the person giving them. It's Christ who makes them holy. It's Christ who uh, gives grace through the sacraments. And so the the church comes along to say, no, like, yes, we should hold our leaders to a higher standard, but they don't invalidate the sacraments as long as they're practiced accordingly and in good intention. Now, why this is important, of course, if you come from a sacramental tradition that uh, may experience some sort of scandal in the church that may come into question, if you don't come, this is where I'm wrapping up, if you don't come from a sacramental tradition, uh, there are other issues that we're seeing now. Um, you know, in the in the horrible case of, say, uh, certain evangelistic ministries, right, who may have certain sins exposed. So we'll just call it out. Ravi Zacharias recently, um, a once great Christian apologist. A lot of people, you know, I remember when I was growing up reading books and just being, really um, impacted by him and things like that. And then not too long ago, it came out that there are some pretty horrible things that were happening in that ministry. And so people may then question, well, if I came to Christ under this person or if my understanding of Christ comes from this person, does that invalidate my Christianity? And most of us would say, no, it's obviously horrible what happened, but that doesn't invalidate the work of God in your life. All right, so for sake of time, I'll wrap up. We've got time. You can ask questions in the thing. But heresies are important to talk about because there are certain things that we can't give up as Christians. Of course, there's a lot of things we probably don't need to fight as much about as we do. Um, But that doesn't mean there aren't things that we shouldn't hold ground on. And that's an important discussion for the church. All right. Sorry. Oh, no, no, I wasn't
1: yourselves tell us kind of what you do how you're involved with theology on tap and then maybe tell us your favorite heresy or if you're willing to really go there which one you could like tend to maybe dip your toe in the waters of okay but we're not going to stone anybody tonight okay all right why don't we start on that end and work our way this way
2: my name is Patrick Hall. I am the uh, rector or senior pastor of Epiphany Church, an Episcopal church uh, in southwest Houston at the corner of uh, Bissonette and Gessner. Uh, I am on the leadership team. Uh, and I don't know, I, I, I like enlightenment. I like special knowledge. Maybe, I, maybe I'm a little, a,
1: little a little in
2: love with Gnosticism, but only a little. Just
1: a little Gnostic. A little. What was, what was the sexy sounding term in Gnosticism? Something demi- the demi-urge. Urge. Yeah. The demi-urge? That I want to sounds... know how you spell
2: pleroma. Oh, my. That is like the Scrabble word of all. <laughs> I, I kept thinking you were saying aroma, but it, it's not That's that. That's part
1: of the demi-urge. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so Patrick's a Gnostic. Great. I've never heard of heresy,
3: so i I'm Meredith. I am pastor of Westminster and a um, pe- uh, leadership person here. And <laughs> She's on the leadership on team. On the leadership team. Yes, I am. Um, I have so many favorite heresies, y'all, like so, <laughs> so many. I will say uh, I am no longer a Marcionite, um, but I probably, <laughs> thank you, yeah.
1: My name is Marius,
3: and I'm recovering from Marcionism. Um, I probably was until I went to seminary, uh, because I'd never actually heard the Old Testament preached well uh, until I went to seminary, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, that does sound like the same God. Well (laughs) done, Bible. There you go. Um,
4: uh, My name is Paul Sloan. I teach... um...
3: All right, y'all, come
1: on. It's actually... You better really bring it tonight. Yeah, with that. I
4: teach. Uh, I teach New Testament. Why
1: didn't I get that? You guys didn't have the demi urge. All right, keep going. Nice. I know. Thank you. Yeah.
4: I teach New Testament uh, and theology and stuff like that at uh, Houston Baptist University, uh, Houston Theological Seminary. Um, favorite? I gotta assume everyone's favorite is antinomianism, right? Oh, yes. If I had a nickel. That's the sort of works aren't necessary, you know, sort of thing. So let's just sort of, you know gratify the desires um it's got to be everyone's favorite right um,
1: how many times can i make the demi-urge joke tonight okay all right
4: that's not the right that's not how it goes um but that's the one that everyone should fight against okay um my the one i probably just naturally dipped toward uh probably arianism Oh. Uh not I'll be giving you. Th- I think you it's leave? wrong. I think it's wrong. I'm not an Arian. I'm not. I'm not a, an Arian. <laughs> no.
1: Arianite. Arianite. Yeah, I don't know how you say that right. <laughs> yeah,
4: I don't follow any of the Ariases, um, but it's like, you, you know, it's tough. You know, some passages you got to really struggle with. <laughs> Dude, I'm a Trinitarian. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs>
0: And I'm Adam Harger. I teach Old Testament at Houston Baptist University uh, thank you and uh, so I will say I've already stated that I, I, you know I always give a little credit to heretics except I will say there's one heretic that I just have no uh, no grace for. can anybody guess who that is? Is it Marcion Uh-oh. yeah so I just sense. as an Old Testament professor who constantly has to to justify the Old Testament. No grace for Marcion. Um, But if I had to... I don't know that I am this, but I think I was definitely raised in Pelagianism.
1: Interesting. Half the people are nodding going, I don't know what that is. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) But maybe we'll get there. Okay. Yeah, interesting, you guys. So eye-opening. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to see how many jokes I can get out of that. Okay, for our first question, two people wrote something similar. So I'm going to read both of these questions to you guys. This is kind of just basic heresy 101. How do we define a heresy? What role does scripture play in this definition? And if we define it in terms of scripture, how do we know if an interpretation of scripture is heretical? And its corollary question is, who determines what is and isn't a heresy? Who should we look to for that definition? Do you need either of those right again? They're just passing it to Patrick. Poor Patrick. Give it to the Gnostic. He has a lot of knowledge.
2: Wow. That happened happened fast. Uh, Okay, so... uh, (laughs) So basically, I think the question, if I were to summarize it in one sentence, is where do like where who has the authority to say something is a heresy? Does that does everyone agree with that summary of the question? Well, and
1: if scripture is involved, how do you know you're not just interpreting right. it? Who or, yeah. who
2: or what? Who or what? So the heresies are, I think, um, mostly uh, accidents of history, um, in the sense that in the very early uh, days of the Christian movement, there was nothing nailed down. And so there, there was was really not a not a ton of, um, of of buoys to 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 determine where the safe swimming was and where the safe swimming wasn't. And so people sort of went swimming in all kinds of directions. And there was no real centralizing force in Christianity. You had Christians in Egypt. You had Christians in the, the, uh, in the Near East. You had Christians all around the Mediterranean Basin. All of these churches were somewhat autonomous of each other. And you had theologians doing theology in all those places. And out of that incredible sort of morass of theology, some very bad ideas emerged. Uh, and some very good ideas emerged, uh, and so then it was incumbent upon the church to determine what were good ideas and what were bad ideas. Um, and that accident of historical becoming is how we arrived at what the sort of uh, what the what the major heresies are. And most of the heresies emerge within the first couple centuries uh, of the church's life. So it's an accident of history. Uh, scripture is is often in, in it can be very deceiving in terms of heresies. Um, And the reason for that is that scripture was not written with a Nicene, you know, no one was writing the Bible with a Nicene creed in front of their face. And so what that means is that that a lot of the heresies, uh, you had Christians who were marshalling scripture to the cause of their heretical interpretations of Christian practice. Um, And so figuring out uh, how to interpret scripture uh, was part of the trick. Uh, What are good interpretations of scripture? What are bad ones? Marcionism is a great example of that. Right, I mean a lot of people read the Old Testament and the New Testament and because they're conditioned to read the New Testament with this grace lens, they read the Old Testament and say, oh the slaughtering of the Canaanites, that's not God, God wouldn't, wouldn't do that, right, uh, and so it actually takes some understanding of, of what the safe swimming zones are to be able to interpret scripture well, that's a really long answer, there you go.
3: I mean, I can't, I think, so I think the, the, so the historical question, the historical answer is, is, is broadly what Patrick lined out, and for, for most Christians, we point back to these ecumenical councils, right, that everyone agrees on, um, before the split of the East and West Church, um, that all Christians agree are kind of the basics of theology, Um, but of course, Coming into the modern day, the question who gets to decide a heresy becomes a quite modern day question. And there is a lot of differences based on the organization of your church. So if you are Roman Catholic, the answer is is a lot simpler. <laughs> because there's an authority, right, that decides for you, uh, heresy or not heresy. If you're in the Protestant tradition, uh, it 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 becomes a little dicier. So we have we all agree on certain creeds. We all agree on theology. But the way the exact way that gets played out today um, is different per church, and often comes down to uh, a discernment at the local church level about how you're going to implement things. Um, so in my in my tradition in Methodist tradition, we talk a lot about. Um, reading scripture through the lens of tradition reason, reason and experience um in other in 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 baptist traditions there will often be um local churches getting together and having a council of elders who make decisions for the local church it 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 does get fuzzy and i think i want to acknowledge that that's part of what's in the question so who gets to decide um there's a little bit of an authority question there um of how much question how much authority does an actual local pastor have to to decide these things and i think I, I don't have a great answer for that other than saying that there are these great big goalposts and every church has to try to navigate its way in between those in the murky waters.
4: I was just going to add one thing about uh scripture early in, in all the early debates in, including in uh in the late 300s um scripture was always a a formative aspect of the of the conversation um this is why I again I'm not um I don't follow Arius here but from Arius' perspective, he was trying to read Colossians 1 as well as he could. He, he thought he had the best reading of Colossians 1, where Christ is called the firstborn of creation. You're like, look, firstborn of creation. That means he's a part of creation. He's created. Look, I've you know, so he, he's trying to make the most sense of the texts uh, that they have. So, I mean, from Arius' pr- perspective, he's got the best reading of Scripture. So then it, so then it does become an exegetical, deb- a scriptural exegetical debate in the, in the councils. Um, and Arius' position was, in my opinion, rightly, um, not followed, uh, but scripture. Just to answer that aspect of the question, scripture was always a formative aspect of the of the conversation, um, and who, who's got the right interpretation of it? Um, yeah,
1: I'm going to move us on because we have so many juicy questions coming in. So, you guys have talked a couple times about Marcionism. It was in the trivia question, but it wasn't part of your talk. But uh, This person says, in the trivia question, you made it seem like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. But it seems to me the God of the Old Testament is pretty angry and jealous and wrathful. And then Jesus came on the scene and was loving and forgiving. Am I a heretic now?
3: Yes. (laughs) See yourself
1: out. Wouldn't it be funny if, oh, somebody Uh, just went to the bathroom. (laughs) Heretic. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He just has to pee. Okay. Do you want me to read it again?
4: No, I think everyone's okay. just gonna say yes.
1: That's it. You're no. just gonna label this person yes.
4: No, uh, I'll, 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 I'll let Adam do this one. A- Adam loves this one, so That's I'll. Uh, no, I, I
0: don't love this one. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs>
4: well, you love
0: the Old Yeah. Oh gosh, there's so much in this question. Um, no, I'm gonna. I have to think you've got to answer these. I will
1: tell you, if you're interested in this topic, we have a couple of podcasts that you can listen to. One of them is actually with Adam when we talk about the violence in the Old Testament.
3: Anyway. Okay, so I will say, yep. the more you study the Old Testament, the more you discover that it's not nearly as angry, as wrathful as God as you think it is, and the more you study the New Testament, the more you discover that Jesus is actually angrier than you think he is, and both of those are true, and, and, and the more you actually delve into... you have to actually study the text, right? So you're not going to get it if you're just hearing sermons on a Sunday morning, because uh, sermons on a Sunday morning can't do the same for you as if you actually go into the text yourself. But the more that you unpack the God of the Old Testament, the more you realize that Jesus is proclaiming and embodying the God of the Old Testament and continuing the same covenant that was, that was begun back, back here. And so it's, it's, the, the story is not complete if you think of it as two separate gods. It's the same story. It's the same God. Um, it's the same... Jesus is just the culmination of everything that we learned back in, in, in the first covenant.
2: Jesus' self-understanding was rooted in his own reading of the Old Testament. Mm. Go back and look at the Suffering Servant songs in Isaiah. And you will be looking at the very scripture that Jesus was reading... As he was in prayerful conversation with God his Father about his identity. Uh, and so all of the, the understandings that Jesus had about his messianic calling were rooted in his own reading of the Old Testament. And so, uh, literally, without the Old Testament, uh, you have no, no sense of what messiahship means, uh, and you have no, no fertile ground from which uh, for that concept to grow up. Um, and so I, I always try to remind my, my my congregation of that. When you're reading the Old Testament, your eyes are dwelling on the exact same scriptures that Jesus most certainly had memorized oh. and that formed his own understanding of his ministry.
4: Yeah, and that's all awesome. The uh, other one thing to say is... Um, that The New Testament authors, uh, you're going to just get it yourself in a funny pickle because the New Testament authors um, say it the other, other way. Once, once Jesus is understood as the embodiment of Israel's God, um, they then retroject him backward into their reading of Scripture. So when you read John 12 and it says John um, spoke of him because, he, or excuse me, sorry, when in John 12 where he says that Isaiah spoke of him, Christ, because he, Isaiah, saw his glory... He's referring to Isaiah's vision of the glory of God in Isaiah 6. So in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of the glory of God. God seated on his throne. Um, the author of John says, G- Jesus, in, in, in Jesus in the gospel of John says that Isaiah saw the glory of God. Me. And so he, he the, the, the New Testament puts Jesus in those Old Testament narratives. So that when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the God of the Old Testament. Other texts as well. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about... Paul says explicitly, um, let us not test Christ as they tested Christ in the wilderness. That's putting Christ as the object of Israel's testing in their wilderness generation. Because, again, once you've got the identification of Jesus as Lord, and then you read the Lord slash God text in the Old Testament, and they make the literary, theological, algebraic equation. Oh, Jesus is Lord, Lord is here, Lord was doing this. Jude does the same thing. Jude says that the Lord, Jesus, rescued a people out of Egypt and then disciplined them in the wilderness. So, I mean, it's, it's huge on the other foot. New Testament, New Testament puts Jesus in the Old Testament. Yeah. Not just prefigured as a type, but actually there doing the stuff.
1: All right, moving us on from Marcionism. Okay, <clears throat> what are the top three to five biblical truths that, if differed with, would be considered heresy. Sort of asking the question in reverse, right? I mean, you kind of mentioned Trinitarianism, but like, so what are the three to five, like hard and fast, you gotta believe that, and if you differ, something's wrong. And then the next question is about what to do with heretics. And one person actually says, at what point do we execute them? (laughs) One of y'all wrote that. Someone also FaceTimed me. It's a real adventure up here. Okay, three to five.
0: Well, one is definitely going to be the full divinity and full divanity, Sorry, full humanity of Jesus. I think you have divanity. The divanity. New word. Okay. No. See, I wanted to get a PhD so that I could make up words because that's how I understood they always did it. So I'm just going to claim that's a new word today. Divanity. The divanity
4: of Jesus. Um. Yeah, I'd go with the Marcionite one. That's the negative version. So the, the positive version would be that the, the creator is also the new creator. So the, the one who creates creation is the one who rescues it and, and executes it as it, or um, performs the new creation. Um, so that, that's the positive version of not Marcionism. Um, that he came in the flesh, that Christ came in the flesh. That seems to be an important one to John. Calls you the Antichrist if you don't affirm that. Um, yeah, that's three. You um, guys get two.
3: So God created the world to be good, um, and then the fall entered, and and the curse entered and messed everything up. But like the the initial goodness of creation actually goes against narcissism because Gnosticism would say that creation is not worth redeeming, um, is not ultimately good. And so uh, Christianity has the goodness and fallenness of creation all altogether in one, but that Christ is ultimately going to redeem, uh, redeem the created order. So I, I see that one as being pretty important because um, Christians Christians are often tempted to write off the goodness of creation.
2: Yeah, I, I think for me, definitely um, the resurrection of the dead. I mean, the notion that uh, that death is temporary, um, that life uh, is eternal. So resurrection and judgment. Um, I think if you if you lop off the end of the story, um, you end up in some um, really weird places. Uh, and also, if you basically uh, spiritualize death, so instead of proclaiming resurrection, you're proclaiming. Sort of a message that death is actually kind of nice um, and dead people are happy uh, and that that kind of being happy and dead is the sort of eternity that's promised to us on easter Um, that is a a really uh, dangerously um, wrong-headed christianity so a full-throated proclamation of the resurrection of the dead
1: i love it i'm surprised that nobody said and so was somebody that texted in anything about oh i went to the wrong text Uh, Okay, Uh, what about the way to salvation talking maybe about like works the person said is believing that some sort of works or action is necessary really a heresy as part of this like three to five fundamental truths. Do you think that would be in that three to five salvation by grace through faith alone? Uh,
4: No, I I think I think uh, works are. Necessary as, as an aspect of, uh, yeah, judgment. That's just based. That's just explicit in James. You're, of course, you're justified. You're not justified by faith alone. You're justified by works. Um, so yeah, I, I um, Paul talks about judgment by works in several texts. Um, so does Jesus. So yeah, I, I w- I'm I'm the wrong guy to ask that. Uh, I I think. <laughs> Sounds like it. Well, I mean, <laughs> certainly not heresy. I, I I might say the opposite. It might be heresy to say the opposite. Might be heresy to say that works. are. Okay, necessary. so remember
1: when I told you that we all disagree? I have a feeling maybe somebody else on the panel would not maybe agree with that. Feel free to grab the mic and, and explain, or not. I just saw I saw some wiggly eyes. I wouldn't
2: say I disagree with it. Uh, I think it's a question of of um, of how we understand how those works happen, right? Sanctification um, is a process whereby the spirit grows um, the character of Jesus Christ within us. Uh, And so the works are the natural extension of what grace is doing in our hearts, not a sort of like uh, gritted teeth willing your way into uh, heaven or into God's good graces. So I I think um, that's the delineation for me.
3: Yeah, But see, all of that, I don't know if I would put any of that at like foundational level heresy. Like I feel like we, we disagree. I feel like what is most important is what God has done and who God is. And like the the stuff about what how we enter into the salvation um, that Christ won for us is a much lower level than the kind of foundational Christian beliefs about which is why when we were all naming like with the core truths, we went to we went to a whole lot more about God and a lot less about us. Hmm.
0: Well I will say, because we're understanding works to be a little bit so if the question is can somebody just not need Jesus at all and sort of just be a good person to get into heaven? I assume that would be heresy, right? Because you're you're denying like foundational things. So if that's what your question was, can I just like give up Jesus and be a good person? Then yes, but that's not how. Yeah.
1: Hey. Uh, good job. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna combine three questions together that have to do with what to do with these heretics. Okay, they go from nice to not as nice. Here we go. What should we do when we hear heretical teachings? It's not like we're still burning heretics, but I also don't think I should stay silent. <clears throat> Number two How should authorities in a church community respond to persistent heresy in a member if repeated attempts at correction have failed? Excommunicate? Keep the member away from leadership? Etc. And speaking of etc., our third question. Is it ever okay to execute a heretic? Oh, there's more. It's, this person is 515, no, I'm kidding. It seems, I'm joking. It seems like there may come some time when it's okay. Heresies spoken persuasively enough by someone with a large platform could lead many to eternal damnation. Discuss.
3: Okay, well, happy to hand it. Yeah. We are not accepting liability for anyone who goes around shooting heretics. So, okay, okay, on a serious note, on a serious note, um, if you look at church history, it gets very bloody very quickly because uh, these were life and death matters. And so when we look throughout church history, everyone was executing everyone else. Like there's no, no one has clean hands in this because this was considered a life or death matter. And, um, and so it, it, there were a whole lot of people executing each other. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing that we have come out of that age. I don't. I don't think we are worse off now for being in a position where it's unthinkable to execute a heretic. Um, I think that actually possibly brings us a little bit closer to what Jesus envisioned as the witness of the church, as a church that embodied shalom and peace and forgiveness. I, I don't, I might take them out of a position of teaching, but I'm not going to kick them out of the church because I don't want them to stop hearing the truth, right? Right. I don't want them to stop coming and receiving and stop coming and, and listening because ultimately I believe that their wrong belief is going to do more damage to them and m- the best thing I can do is to try to put them in a place where their belief is corrected. The, 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 the problem with heresy, and I know we get really funny about this and I know it gets academic, the problem with heresy is that what you believe actually does affect you spiritually right? This is not just academic. This is not just passing a history test. I have counseled so many people whose wrong beliefs about God are killing them on the inside. There was a woman that I walked through who had just a terrible history in her background, and she, she kept, we kept praying, we kept reading through scripture, and at one point we were reading through the resurrection passages together, and we got at the point where Jesus met Mary Magdalene, and he says, "Uh, woman, why are you weeping? And she looks at me and she goes, why is he yelling at her? And I was like, what? (laughs) And what I realized is because her belief was so strong that God was mad at her, that it had infected everything. It infected the way she treated her husband, it affected the way she treated her children, it affected the way she saw herself. In walking through that with her, that that is an untrue belief about God, was one of the most liberating experiences for her. So when we talk about confronting heresy, we are talking about confronting the lies that enslave people, rather than setting them free with the truth about who God is, and therefore the truth about what God has for them to become. Preach. Okay, so
1: that answers the question about people coming to church that have wrong beliefs. What about people with a big platform? That's what the the more aggressive text. Well, those you about. can execute. Huh? Oh, okay. <laughs> She's like, it's all jokes. And then she made one. Okay.
0: Well, now the question has changed. <laughs> well, feel free to speak to the
1: other thing too. I just want to make sure that part that person gets their yeah.
0: question heard. Well, I was just going to say we would be naive if we thought that some of the violence in this was all theologically motivated and not you know politically and socially motivated as well. There were a lot of things going on. Um, So I agree. I'm glad we kind of came out of that Um, and If we look at scripture for an example here the the stuff that we see there They're more concerned about uh, the practices of people and not necessarily theology. So Paul does give us you know reasons to right kick people out of the church uh, for various reasons right to to Paul
1: of the Bible not Paul not not
0: you Paul Although, would you give reasons to keep people? Okay. Um, So there there are ways that we address, and and in his case, it's various. you know, somebody's sleeping with their stepmother or something like that, right? Um, And and so it's not as theologically motivated. But if we understand that not only does do certain wrong beliefs harm us as individuals, we also have a responsibility, especially as leaders, to protect the community. Uh, And so there is a you know, while I wouldn't advocate for harming anyone, uh, there may be reasons to put somebody out of the community, even if it's only temporarily, right? Because we want to be redemptive. We want to um, do what's best for that person. But we also have to hold in tension the good of the community. Now, what you do with somebody with a big platform, I don't know, get a bigger platform? And I, I have no idea. Anybody got a
1: Well, there's another question later that asks a question that I think will take us back here. So I'm gonna move us on for now and hope that we kind of come back here. You'll see where I'm going with it. But for now, I wanna ask three texts came in that are a little on the lighthearted side. Maybe they didn't think they were lighthearted, I do. So I'm gonna ask those and maybe do sort of like a quick shot, like answer, but answer kind of on the quick side and then we'll go back to the heavy stuff. Okay, one, do dogs go to heaven? And if yes or no, what heresy does that adhere to? (laughs)
0: Disneyism? Disneyism, or, or,
3: or. I love it.
1: Any thoughts on pets in heaven? Animals in heaven?
0: I don't think so. <gasps> oh, no. I, I think there are pets. I don't think your dog Fluffy from when you were a kid is necessarily going to be there. Adam. I'm sorry. You might have a new Fluffy. You might have a new Fluffy. I'm sorry, you're.
3: Execute the <laughs> I mean so in in Isaiah's passages of the new creation it is mostly non-humans, right? It's the lion lying down with the lamb and the wolf and, fluffy. and and fluffy playing over the adder's den. And so the image that we're given of the new creation is a completely restored new creation. Now I don't know if there's an individual. Yeah, the the, the I don't know though. What see, do you have against Fluffy? My gosh. I don't think it'd be heresy to say no. I don't think it, I don't think it'd be heresy to say absolutely no. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a heresy. Um, but like the 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 complete focus on resurrection being for humans only, I think, is not biblical. That's my...
1: Okay.
2: I think uh, I think it's a mistake to understand resurrection as being um, kind of a, a point in time. In other words, like on December the 14th, 2035, the resurrection will happen. I think it's more appropriate to think of resurrection as uh, all times, people, and things in the cosmos being gathered together uh, into eternity uh, with God. Um, And so what that means for Fluffy the Dog, I don't know. Um, But I do think it means that uh, as a resurrected person, you will not experience life um, in the same sort of linear uh, way you do now, where you have no access to the past or to the future. I think you'll experience life more like the way God does, where past, present, and future will, will all be equally accessible. So the you that is resurrected is not the you of December 25th, 2040. It is you as an entire being through the entirety of your existence. So what that means for dogs, I know. All
1: right, Adam, are you gonna to try to redeem yourself here? You're the first time we've ever had a guest speaker be booed.
0: That's fine.
1: I'm so sorry. It's fine. It's
0: fine. In my defense, I grew up in the country, and sometimes you gotta eat the animals. You can't, you can't get attached to them, okay? And I feel like if Fluffy's resurrected, Fluffy—I mean, you don't eat Fluffy, but you
1: you know—you're making it so much better. You resurrect
0: the cow. You gotta. I know. It's fine. (laughs)
4: let You gotta move have, on. have somebody to hate. Okay. Adam was like, hold on, I got something else. I ate my pants. <laughs> so, did you think about that? Um, <laughs> all
1: right, these were supposed to be quick.
4: All right, all right. But
1: speak your piece. Do you have something no, quick?
4: No, uh, Romans, just to... Change the question, you, the question mentions heaven, right? You know, the, the New Testament characteristic is to talk about new creation. Uh, I think that's appropriate in this context. Uh, Romans 8 talks about uh, all, all of creation that is currently groaning and all of creation will be redeemed from its slavery to corruption. So uh, to the to the degree that animals participate in all creation, I think animals are uh, participants also in the glorification of the future. Um,
1: OK. So. Search for fluffy when you get up there, and we'll all go. We'll gather together again and see what happened. Okay, next sort of more lighthearted question: Is the Left Behind style eschatology? Eschatology is a fancy word that means like what happens in the end of all things. Is the Left Behind series, is it heretical?
4: Uh, I think it's wrong. I don't think it's heretical.
1: Okay, can you help make that distinction a little like?
4: Yeah, I think it's a wrong belief. Uh, I don't think it, I think it's a misreading of some texts like Daniel and Revelation and Ezekiel. Uh, It applies a a certain kind of um, hermeneutic to Daniel and Ezekiel. It it applies a certain kind of uh, reading strategy to Daniel and Ezekiel and applies it also to the book of Revelation. It also just, I think it's a misreading of passages, so I I think it's incorrect, but I don't think it necessarily is yeah
1: can I so for people that are like I don't know what he's talking about the left behind series a lot of us know but there are kind of three camps of things that happen at the end of all times I'm not going to get into all of them but one of those camps is represented in that series so there are a lot of people really lovely people who believe that so you disagree with it but you would say it's not a heresy I just, I know there are people in this room that are like squarely in that camp and read scripture faithfully.
4: For sure. Yeah, that's, that's why I say I don't think it's radical. I think it's a misreading. Um, We can argue about that if you want, but I, I I think it's an an incorrect interpretation of a passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, a passage in Revelation 3, and a bunch of stuff in Revelation. Um, Yeah, I don't know of any sort of like central doctrine that it denies or doesn't affirm by that reading, but yeah. In other words, you could be like a Trinitarian and all the other stuff and also have like a a rapture type thing going on and still affirm all the other stuff, right? Okay.
1: I'm moving us on because I think most of the people on the panel probably would say the same thing. Yeah? Okay. Last lighthearted question. Which is more heretical, using trespassers or debtors in the Lord's Prayer? Do y'all have thoughts? Just show of hands, show of hands. Who is with me on debtors? Anybody? Am I the only debtor? There's like four of us. Oh, we're getting stoned for sure. Right, and Luke is debtors. All right, I see that hand, Nathan. Thank you.
4: So obviously, it depends on which gospel you're reading, right? Because Matthew says trespassers. The Lord's gospel. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Because Matthew says gospel or uh, trespasses, and Luke says debtors. Uh, the basic thing here is that Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He's going from village to village, preaching and teaching stuff. So, he's, he probably gave the same, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He probably gave that sermon everywhere he went. So, there's no doubt that he said some things differently as he went along. So, that I have zero doubt that he taught his disciples to pray, and on one occasion, taught them to pray using the word trespassers, and on another occasion, to, the word debtors. Um, in the same way that there's a bunch of differences between the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount, that's because he probably gave that sermon everywhere he went. Because he went from, like, the, the Gospels just described Jesus as going from village to village preaching. He didn't change his message everywhere we went, he gave the same message everywhere we went. But like a good, you know, teacher, he probably changed some stuff up every now and then.
1: Uh, did you have more to say about that? Are you, you're a trespasses girl? Um, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> we can still be friends. <laughs> okay. Also, debt can
4: be a metaphor for trespass, so it just seems like yeah. it's a
1: zero It's a silly question, and that's what we're going for. We're going back to some serious stuff, okay. I have two questions that are about the Trinity. One says, oneness Pentecostalism, that's a a specific denomination, is not quite Arianism, so not all anti-Trinity doctrines are equally heretical, right? And I wrote back to the person and said, that's modalism, Patrick. Anyway, no. Um, And then the other one says, and this is the one that I really kind of want you to answer. I can't get my phone to go, but I remember what it says. It says, can I not believe in the Trinity and still be saved? I hope so or please, or something like that. Oh, wait, I oh, found it. Can I not accept the Trinity and still be saved, please? They did say
3: please. Accept the Trinity, that's a... Into your heart. Nobody else is... So question about the Trinity, how important
1: is it for salvation?
2: Again, I mean, I think the issue with heresy is that um, it can lead you to some... For, to some um, troubling places in terms of how you live out your theology. What the Trinity does is that it essentially creates this perfect, stable balance within God between oneness and difference. Um, And in large part, how you understand what you do in your church will be related to how you understand the Trinity. Um, And you can often trace ecclesiology problems in other words problems with how a church organizes itself and understands itself back to problems in their trinitarian theology because what the trinity does is it is it actually demonstrates for us what relationship is supposed to look like based on what relationship looks like in the godhead Um, and so uh, obviously the question of whether you can be saved if you don't believe in the Trinity is a, is a management question, and I'm in sales, um, <laughs> But what I will say is that I think that, that not affirming the Trinity runs the risk of, of messing around with, with your church and how you understand how the people in your church relate to each other um, in some ways that, um, that could, get, um, could get yucky.: yeah.
1: You're just passing it. Yeah, You're the mediator. I'm
3: Did you eat this animal?
1: Well, you, I would think one of you might want to mention something like, there are other religions that deny the Trinity, that's part of the problem why we would say they're false religions, right? I'm like just feeding them my thoughts and hoping yeah. they'll say, yes, that's right.
0: Yeah, I would agree with everything you said. I mean, there, it, it would depend on why you don't want to hold on to the Trinity and how that affects the rest of your theology and your understanding. I will say in the question of can I do this and still be saved, I love that line, I'm in sales not management. Uh, I, I will say there's a part of me that is hesitant about tying salvation directly to a, a cognitive exercise, right, so this, this having the correct theology, um, but I would also follow that up by saying just because something isn't tied directly to your salvation doesn't mean it's not incredibly important. So... It's a hard question for me to answer because I want to say, I, I mean, in terms of your salvation, who knows? Like, God knows. Um, but I would say it doesn't mean it's not very important for you to think about why you don't accept the Trinity and and how that's going to affect your understanding of Christianity.
1: Uh, the first part of that question was about uh, oneness Pentecostalism and somebody just wrote in a tag-in question and said, are there any heresies related to the Holy Spirit? And I wonder oneness Pentecostalism Pentecostal- Pentecostalism mercy puts a big emphasis on gifts of the Holy Spirit and that if you don't exercise those that you're not saved maybe you guys can speak to that because we didn't we haven't yeah. talked about Holy Spirit heresies yet
0: well this is where we're getting into New Testament territory so I'm getting he's out gonna of pass mine. it to Paul but I will say you know I I have had people tell me you know because I don't possess certain gifts that I am not saved again I don't we're talking heresy, but I I think that's wrong. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's, you know, Paul says, well, that's where this Paul can probably quote it better than I can. You know, this idea that no one person possesses all the gifts, uh, and no single gift is possessed by all persons. I can't, maybe somebody can help me out with the actual verses there, but I would say that's incorrect.
1: So you would all agree that there's that's an incorrect idea that if you haven't displayed certain gifts like speaking in tongues, that 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 you're not saved. That would we'd all agree that's incorrect.
4: I would say that's certainly incorrect, and it. I wonder if it's heretical for creating a soteri- uh, soteriological meaning, um, sort of a line in the sand of you must cross this line to be saved. Making that sort of de- declaration um, is. Potentially heretical, I guess I guess I don't know. It depends on how you define heresy. If we're defining heresy as, you know, proper affirmations about the nature of God or something, then then no, I guess that's not a heresy, um because this is more about like sort of the body of body believers and what they should or can do. Uh I would say it's more than just wrong, it's it's uh very wrong and please don't do that. Um and it's maybe susceptible to judgment, yeah. Uh that's a It's it's certainly an an excess. Um, And and Paul just explicitly contradicts it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. I mean, he just says um, that not everyone will have all the gifts and God gives these gifts according to his own measure of grace and he he apportions them according to his own will. Um,
1: Okay. Moving us on because we only have nine minutes and I'm going to try to get to as many of your questions as I can. Okay. This one says, you're on the council of 2021. It's like Nicaean council, but now 2021, you guys are it. What widely accepted teaching prevalent today would you declare a heresy? And they were kind enough to give us three examples, but you can pick your own. But they just said as, you know, dispensationalism, Christian nationalism, prosperity gospel, your own, not your own, but like your own thoughts, you know, like. I like the question, though. You're on a council. What's a prevalent belief today? I can go on about the Enneagram Gosh, if you I have want. To think. So,
3: okay, I will say most of what we are facing today I still see as a rehashing of the old stuff. I see very little that's actually new. Very, very little that's new. Christian, like, I think I could ground an argument against pretty much everything I see wrong today in these old heresies that we've been talking about because I don't think we're good at inventing new, new errors or sins. I think we just kind of rehash the old stuff. Um, so I, I will say what I find myself preaching against most, um, because of the demographic um, I normally find in my congregation, is not any of the ones that were mentioned, um, but more a sense of simply um, apathy from prosperity. Um, the sense that we are coming to church because we like God and not because we need God. Um, in the sense that we are somehow doing God a favor by showing up in church and not that we're here because we we desperately need the salvation that was offered to us. And I think that's simply from living in a comfortable society um that has not seen war or famine or poverty or anything um, in 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 a generation. Um, that's whatever we want to call that heresy. That's what I mostly find myself addressing.
2: You know, I um, th- theologically some of the most important thinkers for me were people like Stanley Hauerwas, Um And there is this very strong kind of uh, neo-Anabaptist strand in my Anglicanism. Um, And I'm deeply troubled by um, the contempt that many of us have towards Jesus' command that we love our enemies. Um, And if I could make a heresy (laughs) out of marginalizing the absolute centrality of enemy love to the gospel, I would um, because I've been ordained for 15 years and the thing, there are two things I see all the time. One is people don't believe in the resurrection of the dead and the two is, is that people marginalize to the point of disbelief Jesus' very clear command to love and forgive our enemies. So that would be the one for me.
1: You got some snaps. For that. Good job. We're wrapping this up. Say maybe one or two more things if we want to. Uh,
4: I, I, I love everything they said. Don't want to take away from their. Um, okay. Yeah. Marcionism.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's, I, it's definitely rehashing a lot of the old classics. Um, I think a lot of it, just in my experience as a teacher, is we were, they talk about a kind of, biblical illiteracy, but there's just a general sort of, and this is me maybe again, I might as well sound elitist, because I already hate puppies.
1: Um, He's a puppy? We all thought he was a dog. Good grief, this just gets worse yeah, and worse. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh,
0: so just a sense of like, you know, people nowadays, like they don't know why they belong to a particular denomination or something. Usually it's because they like the worship style or something. So there's there's not this sense of like People are unaware of the heresies because they're just unaware of theology mm. in general. When I get students year after year, I teach, you know, probably 120 to 180 new students in intro to theology. And common questions are like, hold on. Uh, and these are these are students that have been Christians their whole lives. They'll be like, wait, hold on. You're telling me Jesus was God? Like, you know, so there's all these kinds. And that's a, a common question that I get. Uh, and so I just think there's... Um, you know, it's not surprising that a lot of these heresies are popping back up.
1: This is why you should keep coming to theology on tap and invite your friends. I want to end this way. A lot of the questions that came in were phrased something like, "If blah blah blah, am I saved? If blah blah blah, can I still be saved?" So, would one or maybe two of you, because we just have like two minutes, maybe just say, "What does it take to be saved? What does it mean?" We doing it all yeah, we're. Do- can someone start playing "Just as I Am"? I'll just hum it quietly while they talk. Just as... I'm kidding, I'm
3: not going to I mean...
1: It's not an altar call, but I think... Here's the thing. I know we have people of all, all across the continuum of belief. We have our theology nerds and people that are like, this is all new. And so if people are like, well, crap, am I saved? Because I believe some of the weird stuff they were talking about. I just think it would be nice to walk away with something that's like, all it takes to be saved is what?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure the Methodist is the best one to uh, handle well, this puppy. <laughs> That's cool. Um, So we are saved by grace. Um, We are saved because of what Christ did and not because of what we do. Um, And our part in that is this deep and radical trust that we call faith. Uh, And so faith is a scary word because when I was a kid, I thought faith was making yourself believe something you don't actually believe. I discovered that's not what it means. It's not what it means. It means trusting that God is who he says he is and that God did what he said he did. Um, and so just opening uh, something within you to trust that maybe um, God is good, and that maybe this whole Jesus thing isn't as crazy as it sounds, um, and that maybe it all actually will be well in the end. That's, that's what it is. It's trusting that God is who he says he is. Um, and the rest is up to Jesus. Jesus.
2: I'm going to give a, a good Anglican answer, which is that if you have been baptized into the body of Christ, uh, meaning that you have been made a member of the body of Christ, not just through a, an, an act of, of outward ritual, but also through uh, a union of your heart, mind, and soul with the body of Christ, uh, and you are, are living in union with the body of Christ, then you're saved as part of the body of Christ. Um, and I think it's, it's as simple as that. Your journey will take you many places. You'll have moments where you're down, moments where you're up, moments where you move forward, decades where you move backward. But if you are knit into Christ's body, the promise of grace is that on the last day, Christ will have outfitted you to stand at judgment and be saved. And you can trust in that.
1: Do either of our resident Baptists yeah. want to say anything, Baptist or should I wrap singing? us up? You can sing if you want.
4: <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, uh, 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 Patrick's um, um, word there at the end, I mean, um, you as well, but Patrick's particular vocabulary of being knit into the body of Christ, um, I mean, that, that's, that's, that speaks to Paul's um, point uh, throughout Romans, um, which is that those of you who've been baptized, you've been baptized into the Messiah, and so that now you're, you're, you're participants in him, and that because you belong to him, he gives his spirit to you, and by virtue of your possession of the Spirit, you, um, you remain, Paul's confident, that you will remain devoted to the one who loves you. Um, and, and because of that, as he says in chapter 14, um, the, 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 the same one who dwells in you will also enable you to stand in the, in the day when he judges. Um, and so, um, yeah, confession that, that Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And that uh, you've been unified with the one who will recreate all of creation, uh, namely uh, Christ.
1: You basically just said Romans 10 9, right? Confess with your heart, believe. That Christ was raised from the dead. Okay. Then you will be
4: saved. Yeah. Then so it seemed like right. an appropriate spot to go to. Yeah. So
1: a couple quick housekeeping things that I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna go. First is if you want to stay afterwards and talk to one of these folks, if you like something that you heard, if you have a question about something you heard, come and talk to them. Um, Theology on Tap and we we don't just wanna like have fun and wrestle around with stuff just to be nerdy. I mean, we really want to know scripture. We want to know God and we want you guys to as well. So come and talk to us. Um, That's the first thing. Second thing is, if you haven't voted, please do vote on our next topic. Our next one is February 8th and you can put those in that basket or just shove them somewhere in that little area over there. Ashley is pointing to the basket. Beautiful, Ashley. Um, And then lastly, if anyone wants to stick around and help us clean up, we will not say no to that. So, oh! That was I will lie. There is one more thing. This little thing with all the logos, it's called a step and repeat. We have some fun little props back here, including some of our like uh, spiritual fathers and some beer hats and a beard and things like that. So if you want to come get some props and take a picture in front of that, please do. That'd be fun. Okay, anything that I've missed? Okay, shall I pray for us? It was, would one of you want to pray for us as we leave? I should do it? Okay. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the conversation, even the silly parts. God, I pray. Well, I pray for Fluffy. Lord, help him be in the, in the heaven. No. God, I am so thankful for so many people that are faithfully reading scripture, wanting to know you, wanting to teach about you and draw people in. I pray that tonight... Um, this will spark something in our hearts that will want us to know you more, that will draw us back to scripture, um, back to you in prayer, in meditation, um, that will know you more. And for those here that don't know you, God, I pray that even now, God, that you would be sparking something in their hearts that says that they want to, that you would be drawing us closer to you, making us salt and light, and then sending us out into the world with the very good news that there is freedom in the truth of who you are and what you have for us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.